the story of the wedding at Cana and um, investigating that uh, that story and uh, and uh, gleaning the truth from it. And it is, it is such a full passage that we've been looking at it since uh, Thursday, I believe. And uh, we're going to look at it again this morning. And this will be the final study that we're going to do in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I, uh, I'm an evangelist, and uh, I don't know what that really means to you. I'm not even sure if I know what that means to me. Um, I've learned that it goes beyond preaching. It goes beyond wearing this kind of stuff. Because Sunday afternoon, this is going to be gone. I put on my Carhartts, which is what I'm most comfortable in anyway. It goes beyond... Uh, goes beyond holding revivals. Being, eva- being an evangelist goes beyond all of that. I think an evangelist is defined by the same definition we define Christianity by. That when you are, in a, when you are a Christian, you are an evangelist. I really believe that. I'd like to talk to you about that a little bit this morning. And I would like to read for you at the outset uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, I know that you have really enjoyed looking at this this week and probably wish that I could just preach out of this forever. Although that isn't possible. But uh, I want to read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and this is how it reads On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Dear woman, what does you, why do you concern? What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now there were set there six water pots, six, six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty to thirty gallons. Now that says in the NIV, you, they have uh, they had six stone water jars there, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. It has to do with ceremonies, that kind of stuff. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the banquet. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom aside. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the beginning of His signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. (coughs) We've been looking at this Scripture and we have divided this study up into four parts because no one will let me preach for four hours. And so... The fourth part, or the fourth study that we're going to look at, uh, which is the final one in this passage, what it does is is it takes the first three studies and kind of uses them as points. So for all those people who like three points in a sermon, you're going to love this this morning. That was a joke. (laughs) No one's laughed all week. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And so what we're going to do is, is it, the fourth study we're going to look at takes the first three and kind of uses them as points uh, in the fourth study. And what, what the fourth, and we, we're going to cover these so you understand this, but you come into John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and what, what you have is that this passage, John chapter 2, is intimately linked back 
to the first chapter. And in the first chapter, obviously we're going to talk about this in a moment, uh, there's a picture of Jesus given there, but also in the midst of that picture, picture of Jesus, you have Jesus calling His first disciples. You got starting in verse 35, he's passing by. You have John the Baptist in this gospel, John the Witnesser, and he's standing there. And of course, he, 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 he proclaims, hey, this is him. This is him. Behold the Lamb of God. The scene passed by, uh, also in verse 25. But uh, he passes, or 29, he passes by, and two of his disciples hear him say this. And they begin to follow him. And that was, uh, one of them was sure was Andrew, and they think the other one was John, although his name's not mentioned. Then a few verses later, Andrew runs and gets Peter, brings him up to Jesus. There he's got his third disciple. Then he calls Philip and then Nathaniel. And so you have, and he calls more than just these five, of course, in the, in the first week. But John picks these five for a reason, uh, that to paint a picture of discipleship. But what's going on here in this first chapter is that Jesus is calling, hear this now, Jesus is calling His 12 disciples. So by the time you come into our passage, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, what has happened is that Jesus has already called all of His disciples. Now, hear this. Uh, This kind of puzzled me. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, Jesus has all of His disciples. He's done called them. He doesn't call any more for the remainder of the gospel, so it's pretty well understood that at this time, at the wedding, He comes, all of His disciples have been called, and they're all with Him. So Jesus has called them and they're following their, their students, they're learning from Him. But what I found is, is you look at this passage coming into the wedding at Cana, and although you have 12 disciples that are following Jesus, uh, they don't necessarily believe in Him. They're doing all the things that disciples should do. They're following Him, they're listening to Him, they're obeying what He's talking about. But they don't really... They don't really get Him yet. They don't really believe yet. And how do I know this? Well, if you look at the end of the passage, verse 11, listen to what it says. This, after after they saw what happened at the wedding, this, the beginning of His signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed His glory. And then it adds, and His disciples put their faith in Him or believed in Him. So in other words, up until this point, they really didn't believe. I never realized that before. You've got these 12 disciples that have been following Him. They come to this wedding and they've been following. They've been going through all the motions. Hey, they're His disciples. But up until they seen this, they really didn't believe. Now, I didn't preach on this, but there's a sermon hidden somewhere in there. Do you think it's possible to come to church every single Sunday? Let's don't go about it that way. Do you think there are people who come to church every single Sunday, go through all the routine of the things we do at church on Sunday. Do all those even Christian things and yet don't know Jesus? Shake your head, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's bigger than that. And the author gets on that right here. And so what you see here is this whole passage boils down to is it was proof. Or what you see here is the whole big deal is about these 12 disciples coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And what do we call coming to faith in Jesus Christ or believing in Jesus Christ? Being saved. That's what we call that. Being saved. Becoming a Christian. So what's going on here, and this is really neat, what's going on here is that this whole deal going on at this wedding was an evangelistic deal 
where 12 guys come to know Jesus. And so there's kind of like, if you ever wanted to know what it means to be an evangelist, if you ever wanted to have a perfect evangelistic program, wow, you're in luck. I'm glad you're here this morning because this is what's going on in this passage. Jesus was the first evangelist. Imagine that. Wow. Not that he wasn't a pastor. Just probably more biblical that he was an evangelist. That's all. Glad you're here this morning. Can I pray with you? Father, we love you this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you've made it so exciting for me. I find it I find it gripping, I find it compelling. And I pray that you might open our eyes to what it means to be Christians this morning. Father, it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. Okay, so what, uh, go, what's going on in this passage is you see the first evangelist, probably a tenored evangelist because he was moving a lot, but I don't want to stretch that. But you see the first evangelist at work and you see the first evangelist and his evangelistic program in this passage. And what's what interesting is, is we've already covered this. So I want to talk to you about it a little bit this morning. And he's got three basic steps. The first step. As we looked at this uh, Thursday night, you see Jesus and how he's presented in this passage, which is really neat. Uh, we talked about this the other night that you cannot take a passage of scripture uh, out of, uh, in the Word of God and just remove it out of the context in which it was written. In other words, uh, John's writing this letter and he's trying to tell us something. He's trying to get a, this story across to us. Don't fall asleep on me, awake. Just elbow your neighbor if they start to fall asleep. I got a good, good view from up here. What's going on is John's got this story that he wants to tell you. He got this story that he has a story that he wants to tell you. And what happens is, is oftentimes, not oftentimes, but probably oftentimes, Christians take out pieces of the story and they just pull them out and they interpret them all by themselves out of the context in which they were written. Now this is bad. And how do we know this is bad? You know this is bad because you see this all the time. Um, you see this at Walmart. Do you like Walmart? Oh, I love Walmart. I go there just to hang out sometimes. And what I'll do is, is I'll, as I'll, I'll, I'll be in line to buy stuff from time to time. And uh, I always get stuck behind the person who's got the most stuff to get. And so I'm often sitting there just looking around. And oftentimes I'll look over to my right and see these magazines. And they're phenomenal. Because on the front of them, recently, I was at Walmart yesterday, wasn't I? At the front of this magazine, I saw the latest one, which is hysterical. On the front of it, it says, 10,000 pound baby born. Whoa. I know, you didn't hear about that? Well, yeah, it's, it's the latest thing. And then, of course, the next one over, and it's got all these outrageous claims, you know. Of course, uh, I didn't know this, but they found some new secret documents of Jesus that reveal some about the, 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 the Taliban and all this, and... What are those magazines called? The tabloids. You don't read those, right? But you do see them in the line, don't you? Do they cause you to chuckle? They do me. But do you know what's so interesting about the tabloids? Is the tabloids, what the tabloids will do is they'll take a little piece of truth out of someone's statement and they'll pull it out and they'll build a whole story about it which is how they get away with everything they do. And they say, whoa, did you not say this? And they go, well, yes, but well, that's all I want to know. Then you did say this. But they pull it out of the context. So every time we as Christians take something out of the context in which it was written, you're just, we're just as bad as the tabloids. And we do that all the time. 
For instance, we open up the book of John to that passage that, where Jesus says, ask anything in my name and it will be given for, to you. And we go, well, I've been really wanting this new car. It's one of those Volkswagen bugs, Jesus. And I ask it in your name. And we go, come on. And we take passages like that completely out of context. Spend enough time on that. We need to look at this passage of John chapter 2 in the context in which it's written. And the context in which it's written is out of the first chapter. And they're linked together. The first phrase in John chapter 2 is on the third day. It's what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And now this third day statement uh, is intimately tied to the first chapter because in the first chapter, you have periodically throughout the first chapter these next day statements. For instance, if you look over with me at verse 29 in John chapter 1, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Go down a few verses to verse 35 and it says, again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. Go a few verses later and you come into verse uh, 43 and it says the next day or the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And so what you have in the first chapter is you have this progression of the first few days of the ministry of Jesus. And what John has been doing, you see, is he's been saying, okay, this day happened and some neat stuff happened here. Oh, really important stuff happened right here and here. But it's the next day, the next day. But what I really want to talk to you about is on the third day we was at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. So everything's been building to this third day, to the story of the wedding at Cana. And so what's been going on in the first chapter is, is he's been giving Jesus these titles. Uh, he's been referring to Jesus in different ways. I didn't know this, uh, and you can investigate this on your own, but the first chapter of John is the most complete, full picture of Jesus anywhere than, bigger than anywhere else in the whole entire Bible. Because he refers to Jesus in 15 different ways. Calls him Son of God. Calls him King of Israel. Calls him Lamb of God. Calls him Messiah. Calls him Rabbi. He calls him the one that Moses wrote about in the law. He calls him the one about whom the prophets also wrote. Phenomenal titles that give you insight into his life. But John's not satisfied with that because he's just been building and he says, what I really want to tell you about Jesus is here in John chapter 2 or yeah, John chapter 2 the story of the wedding at Cana. And he takes all of these 15 titles, he kind of crunches them together, and he shows them at work in Jesus at one time. And what's the picture we see of Jesus? Where's she at? It was in your devotions this morning. Where's she? Did she skip church this, evening, this morning? Nursery. Oh. I was going to use her. Margaret, neat woman. Jesus is pictured here as a servant. Oh, and it's a neat story. What you find is here, I'm going to read through this briefly, but what you find here in this passage is Jesus shows up to the wedding. This is what happens. Jesus shows up to the wedding, and of course, mom comes up to him. Uh, moms do that. And um, she says, listen, they're, they're out of wine. They don't have any more wine. And Jesus acts kind of standoffish, but he says, hey, why do you involve me? What she does is she ends up leaving Jesus all these servants. And so they're standing there. They've probably got these wine containers. And uh, Jesus says, listen, do you see these six stone water pots? They say, yeah, sure I do. He says, fill them up with water. So they fill them up to the brim. They fill them up. Then he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they do so. And what happens is, is they, they draw some of the water out. They take it to the master of the banquet. And he looks in the bucket. Uh, of course, the servants thinking they're holding water. Looks into the bucket and sees wine. 
And of course, he drinks some of the wine and, and then he, he says, what? Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. And so he walks over and he chastises the groom and it's kind of an in-depth story. But the point is, is there's this incredible miracle done and no one even knows that there was a miracle done. Jesus wasn't flashy. He didn't do it so everybody would look at him and go, wow. It wasn't that kind of thing. You see Jesus pictured as a servant who is hiding in the shadows and meeting the needs of the people. Of course, this is how Jesus always was. He shows up at the, he shows up at the last supper scene and all the, all the disciples grab the best seats around the table. But what position does Jesus take? That of a... He even bends down and starts washing their feet. And Simon goes, what are you doing? You're going to get up. What are you doing? And he says stuff like, whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be your... Slave. slave. Servant. Doulos, same word. Must be your servant. And so you see Jesus pictured as a servant. Servant, not in terms of defined by things that he does, but servant defined by his outlook. Hear me on this. If we do not look like servants, we do not look like Jesus. And I'm not talking about servants. Okay, in other words, what he's saying is, is after the potluck uh, and all the women go into the kitchen and all of us guys sit around the tables congratulating each other on being masters of the universe um, and they're all in there working and we're out here. What you're saying, Jeremiah, is that we should go in and help the women. Well, yeah, I am saying that. But you see, you could do all kinds of servant stuff and never be a servant. Do you hear me on that? You can do servant things and never be a servant. Because it's bigger that servanthood is bigger than just doing servant stuff. Servanthood is a way of thinking. It's an inward attitude. Did you know that you can trace every sin back to a lack of servanthood? Shared this with the church the other night, Wednesday night, that you draw lust, coveting, that kind of stuff back. And the root of the problem is it's self-centeredness versus servanthood. You get this person who looks at this other person and turns them into an object and says, I want to use you for myself. I don't want to meet your need. I want to use you to meet my need. And sin is born. Murder. Same thing. Lying. Twisting the circumstance to better fit my desired outcome. Every single one of those always comes back to, and Jesus, Jesus stood in the midst of his world and said, I don't want to use you to meet my need. How can I meet your need? He meets this prostitute at this well, and she's baffled by him because he begins to talk to her, and yet he doesn't use her for himself. He's like, how can I meet your need? How can I meet your need? And she says, you're weird. Which is what the world should be doing to you. They probably do that, but they need to be doing that more and more and more. People tell me I'm weird all the time, which must mean I'm a good Christian. (laughs) Because they want you to... Jesus has called us to stand in the midst of our world and say, how can I meet your need? Not how can I... How can I use you to meet my need? How can I meet your need? First principle. Jesus was a servant. Now, what else? What's going on in the passage more so than just Jesus being a servant? And I'll cut this one down short is that Jesus wasn't just a servant. In other words, He wasn't just running around going, I want to meet your need, I want to meet your need. He wasn't manipulated. In other words, there was times when Jesus came into a community and He didn't do any miracles. 
There's times when he came into a community and he just didn't do anything. And so Jesus wasn't pressured. He didn't serve according to his plan. There was something going on inside of Jesus. In other words, Jesus wasn't serving according to his plan. He was serving according to his father's plan. And so his service was an uncontrolled servanthood. It was an uncontrolled service. Jesus didn't serve where he wanted to serve. He didn't, re- he didn't rely on his own understanding. He had everything going on in his life was a product of what his father was doing. Everything was. Every, it wasn't according to his plan. It's according to his father's plan. And what that tells us is, is that God wants you God wants you to stand in the midst of your church, in the midst of your community and say, I, I want to meet your need. But what you must realize is that you don't know how to meet someone else's need. That God knows how to meet their need. And so you stand in the midst of your world and say, God, I want to meet the needs of those around me. But I realize that I don't know how to meet their needs. So meet their needs through me. Let me serve them according to your plan, not according to my plan. Now where this is, where this is most, I guess, uh, plainly seen is in church. I have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful ability uh, as an evangelist um, in that I don't, and this comes out weird, but that I don't know you. I don't know you, <laughs> which is wonderful. Not in the sense of I don't like you, but it's like when I come here and I, uh, and I preach or I, I'm here uh, for the week, I don't come up to your pastor and go, okay, who's your troublemakers? Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I figured that one out on my own this morning when I came in. And okay, I'll use an illustration about them. And what does your church really need to be, what, what do I really need to preach on? I don't do that. I don't do that because that's not helpful because oftentimes when we as evangelists and pastors do that, we're preaching at the symptoms and not at the problem. And what happens in a lot of churches is pastors, and obviously not your pastor, but what happens in churches is pastors are controlling and they'll walk around and look at the people in the church and go, I know what I need to preach on next Sunday. And that's not the problem at all. And oftentimes they end up preaching at symptoms and not at the core problem. Because the word goes where we can never go. Man, I, I struggled with that when I was married. <laughs> I'm married. And when I first got married, I had a good heart. And I looked at my wife and said, I want to meet your need. And boy, do you have a lot of needs. Boy, I've been looking at them. <laughs> I mean, I've been watching you, Corinda, and, and you got this problem, and I just want to meet your needs, so we really need to address this. And I, would, I was critical of her. I mean, you don't even... You don't even play piano, and I'm an evangelist. And I've been looking at some of your outfits, and I just want to meet your need. I want to serve you. And I see is, and I became this controlling male. And what did that do to my wife? Well, one, she hated to be around me. But number two, she was beat down all the time. It's like she was scared to live around me because I was always critical and judgmental of her and watching her. and, (laughs) And I was trying to meet my wife's needs when I didn't know how to meet my wife's needs. So controlling is always sinful. We see this in the relationship with our kids. You cannot, your kids. Now, I'm not a parent, but I know the Word says if you do this to your kids, it's not going to work. And I've got tons of PK friends who rebelled against this. So what if service was standing in the midst of your church as an evangelist and saying, I've come this week to meet your needs but I don't know how to meet your needs, so I'm going to rely on this Word and allow God to do whatever He wants in the midst of you and I want to take my hands off. And He meets your needs in a way that I could never meet your needs. So it's being a servant, but it's being an uncontrolled servant. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus was doing. 
He didn't meet. The, he never met. He met the need according to his plan. He met the need according to his father's plan. Now, the third practical in this has to do with uh, some of the props used. It's where is God's place of service? There's something I want to share it with you. I thought it was really neat last night. I want to share it with you again. Um, you see in this passage something that most of the time slips our mind. You see Jesus. His mother comes up to him and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says, uh, wait, why do you involve me? My time hasn't come. Hey, this is your plan, not my deal. And she, of course, ignores him, which mothers do that. And she turns over to these servants. She's got these six servants, and that's not bad. But she turns over to these six, these six or seven or eight servants or whatever she's gathered. And, of course, they're wanting to, to, to take care of the wine problem, aren't they? So they've probably got all these wineskins, some things to put wine in. And so mother turns over and she says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you, do it. And uh, of course you've got these, these servants who are standing there going, okay, we need to get this wine thing going on. And Jesus looks at them, and this is what he says, which I find this ironic. He says, he does not say, okay, fill these wine containers. Fill those wine containers you're holding with water. He doesn't. He says, you see these six stone water jars? Fill those with water. But the text tells us that those were not used for wine, were they? What were they used for? Ceremonial washing. They were used for upholding the Old Covenant. That's what they were used for. And so, of course, so the the servants automatically probably put down their wine containers and they're going, why do we need to fill those up? And then probably one of the servants goes, well, hello, he's keeping the law. That's Jesus, always obeying God. It's a Jesus thing. And so, of course, they've gotten low and he wants to put God first. That's Jesus, always putting God first. So we want to fill these up with water. And so you've got all these servants who grab these buckets and they're running back and forth to the river and they're filling up the wall, these, these ceremonial washing jars with water. Well, they get them done and they come back and they go, okay, mission accomplished. Now we need to get to busy with this wine stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And of course the servant is going, oh, he's become ceremonially unclean and Jesus wants to take care of that first. We'll deal with the wine in a minute. So he goes over and he gets this bucket. It's not wine, it's water. It's not used for wine. It's used for ceremonial washing. So he probably gets a ceremonial ceremonial, ceremonial washing bucket, if there's such a thing. And he dips some out water. He probably drapes a towel over his arm. And he goes up and he stands right beside the master of the banquet. Head probably bowed in a servant position. And of course the master of the banquet looks over and sees the servant there. And he looks down in there and he sees wine. And he goes, oh, I thought we were out of wine. And the servant goes, what? Because he just got out water, and it's wine. Listen to what the text says. Jesus said to them, fill the water parts with water, and they did so. He said, draw some out, and now take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom aside. So here's what happens. He, t- he looks in, the master of the feast didn't know where it came from. And so he automatically thinks, oh, they got more wine. But the servants knew where it came from. They're thinking, hold on. That was water, it's now wine. Carry the one, divide by. That, that was water. And of course, the master of the banquet goes, oh, I thought we was out of wine. So he grabs his cup, he dips it in, and he takes a drink of the wine, and he goes, oh, this is the, where's that bridegroom? And he comes up to the bridegroom, and he goes, come here, kid. 
He's the master of the banquet, the big guy, the one in charge. And he brings the kid aside, the bridegroom, and he says, listen, you've got a lot to learn. First of all, everyone brings out the choice wine first. That's this stuff. And then after everything, the bad stuff's gone. Then you bring out the bad stuff. You've got them mixed. What are you doing? And Jesus has just made the best. The... And what you see is, is that the master of the banquet didn't even realize that there had been a miracle. No one knew. Okay, now the point of this is, or there's a side point to this, that, okay, the, the servants had drawn the water out of the, and it's now wine. But what the ramifications of this are is later on in the wedding, someone's going to become ceremonially unclean. Is that correct? They're going to need to become ceremonially clean. They're going to need to wash. So what's going to happen is later on in the ceremony, someone's going to go, oops, I became ceremonially unclean. I'll be right back. I'm going to go wash. So he goes on. He gets his probably his, his, his scriptures or whatever, or maybe he just gets some towers or some ceremonial stuff on. And he walks over and he probably stands before the pots and he says a little prayer. And then he gets down to get ready to wash and he goes, hold on. These are all filled with wine. And then he probably says something like, okay, who pulled the old prank about putting the wine in the ceremonial watch? Very funny. Ha, ha, ha. Come on, that's funny. I thought it was funny. (laughs) And what happens is, is these which were filled with water are now filled with wine. They're filled with wine. So what Jesus has done, hear this now, Jesus did not multiply wine into wine containers. He multiplied wine in a place where wine should not be. And what Jesus has done is He has stopped. He has shut down the old covenant system. He shut it down. But you know what? Jesus always did that. We looked at last night how Jesus was constantly breaking the Sabbath. But how was He breaking the Sabbath? Healing people. And the Jews were irate. This man can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And what Jesus is always doing is He's always shutting down the old covenant system. Always doing it. And why is He doing that? Because this miracle is a sign. It's a sign that the old covenant is passing and the new covenant is here. Which is all about that God is out of the ceremonies of life and He's into the practical, ordinary, average, everyday things of life. You want to know, folks, where God wants to be involved in your life? Oh, uh, church on Sunday morning. (laughs) Well, yeah, but not really. Where does He want to be involved in your life? Well, Sunday school. That's right. Big Sunday school push going on. Well, yeah, but not really. Where does God want to be involved in your life? Uh, He wants me to have my devotions every morning. No, wake up, kid. Where does He want to be involved in your life? He wants to be involved in the the working environment that you work in Monday through Friday. He wants to be involved in the television shows you watch. We know this, don't we? You see, when you come to church and you sleep through the sermon, I don't think you ever came to church. It doesn't happen here, but you know how many churches I go to and look out, not the teens, but the adults, and and see. Amen. Saved, sanctified. That's right. That makes me sick. That has nothing to do with Jesus. Showing up to church on Sunday and standing around going, where's my pillow? Oh, here it is. It's for my neck, of course. My neck. That's not hard to figure out. That it's bigger than that. It's always been bigger than that. It's about coming to church on Sunday and saying, hey, I'm here, to, I'm here to learn from you. I've been learning from you all week. I've been walking with you all week. You've been down there at my job. You've been, inv- you've been invading in my territory, in my space. You're involved in everything that I'm doing. And I've been reading my word and I'm here to listen to the pastor preach. And I want to be grown and stretched. 
What happened to all that? What happened to all that? That that seems to be diminishing. Probably not here at this church, but that seems to be diminishing in the churches that I go to. Obviously not at this church, but you know, I'll go to revivals and the the church will run 120 people show up all week. Where's the hunger gone? Where's the passion gone? Where's the, it's all about you. My life is about you. Jesus, we're not going to get to heaven and Jesus is going to say, good Sunday school attendance. Many on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord, I came to church every Sunday. I taught a Sunday school class. I preached. In fact, the word puts it at, I prophesied, I healed. Remember that? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. Because it's not about the religious things that we do. It's about this intimate, personal relationship that I have. Jesus is a servant. And He wants to stand in the midst of your life and serve. Not where He wants to serve, but where His Father wants to serve. And where does that take place? Uh, church? Church on Sunday morning? <laughs> no. Where does that take place? Uh, Sunday school, that's what it is. No. Where does that take place? Devotions? Prayer before the meals. That's what it is. No. Where does that take place? The McDonald's drive throughs of your life. Where does that take place? It takes place when you're mowing your lawn. It takes place in, in bow hunting. And I'll be bow hunting this year. That's where it takes place. That's where God wants to be involved. Now, now remember what I told you. This whole passage was about 12 guys. Oh, this is closing. I know we're a quarter after. But this passage is about 12 guys called disciples who get saved and come to know the Lord. I grew up in the the Mormon church. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Probably have. And um, my father grew up Mormon. He was a Mormon for over 30 years. and Come from a long line of Mormons. Great people. Most of them just don't know Jesus. Some of them do. But their view of Jesus is so askewed. And I never understood them. We had all these crazy rules. For instance, they were, we, we were really, we were really, really rule-oriented. One of the things was, isn't this right, Santa Barbara? That's right, isn't it? One of the rules was is you had to keep the Sabbath day holy. Which means you could not play any sports on... You couldn't go out and rough around with your friends. I couldn't play football with all the neighbor kids on Sunday. But I could come in and watch it on TV. I never figured that one out. Had all these types of things. The neighbors down the road, they weren't Christians. They would always have cookouts. And I'd want to go down there. And they'd, no, no, they're working. They're preparing. You know, being unholy. We're going to go out to eat this, this Sunday. Never figured that kind of stuff out. So I rebelled against church people in general. I lumped you all together. No offense. But in 1995, God got a hold of me. And um, I was in the United States Marine Corps. And uh, I don't say this to scare you or anything, and I hope you don't think too much of this. Um, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps in 1995 for drug use. And uh, I was an alcoholic as a problem. And I didn't know Jesus. I didn't want to know Jesus. But I was living homeless in California. I'm about 6'4", about 210 pounds. But when I was kicked out, I was 6'4", and weighed 135 pounds. A little, a little on the skinny side. And um, 
I remember living in California out of my car, out of Camaro, and uh, God got a hold of me through a, te- through a radio program. And um, I can't explain it, but it's a long story, but He got a hold of me and called me to preach. And uh, my first response was, yeah, right. <laughs> Hello, I don't look like your typical preacher. And, um, but I couldn't get away from it. And uh, it's not that I didn't want to, I had just passion inside. But, so I moved home, and I told my mother, I said, Mom, I'm called to preach. She goes, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> she goes, hey, quit lying. <laughs> and I was like, no, really? And so I enrolled at Olivet Nazarene University right down the road here. And I showed up, preacher. I was called. But I realized from the very beginning that I didn't look like most preachers. Um, I had a shaved head at that time, shorter than your hair, bald. And I had a goatee. That was just right here. It was about that long. I used to color it red and blue and everything. And uh, because I was in the Marine Corps, I have tattoos on me and uh, various tattoos. And um, I'd wear, my favorite was wear those little tank tops that are like stretched. They're like almost undershirts. They got a fancy name for them, but they, that's what I wore with those with uh, corduroy cut off shorts and sandals. And um, I met this evangelist by the name of Stephen Manley. And um, he saw something in me and asked me to be an intern with him. And so I traveled with him, and I traveled with him just the way I wanted to. I just dressed normal, and he, he let me. And I remember we went to the Sanctified Church Camp in Mississippi. And um, I remember jumping off the bus and looking around. I saw some teams, and I immediately ran over to love them. And I'm on the basketball court playing with them, you know, and we're hanging out. And I look over, and I see, and I didn't realize that all the teens were wearing blue pants with white dress shirts. Everyone wore that. I didn't realize it. So I look over and I see this woman headed toward me. And she's got this beehive. And it's tilted to me. And she's, she's walking. And I thought one of the kids were in trouble. So I was like, good luck. And I walk over. And when I wa- started to walk over, she veered toward me. And I was like... <laughs> and she approached me. Came smack dab right in front of me. And she goes, excuse me, sir, do you realize this is the sanctified church camp? I said, yeah, I'm the youth speaker. <laughs> she goes, over my dead body. And grabbed me by my ear and pulled me off to Stephen. And I didn't look, I looked like a thug. I really did. And to be honest with you, I cannot tell you, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but I cannot tell you how intimidated I was of um, Christians. I couldn't tell you how intimidated I was of ministry students. I went in and set in my theology class. And these guys wore suits. They carried Bibles. They had something called a manual. I didn't know we had manuals. And they knew all the right answers. They had this background that I didn't have. And I was, I was so intimidated, man. I can't tell you what that was like. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I didn't fit in. I didn't look right. I didn't... And so I made it my mission in life to fit in. So I watched them. And I began to dress like they did. Talk like they did. And I began to act like they did. And I just, and, and preaching and being an evangelist. I wanted to be the best evangelist that I could. So I watched them. And okay, you keep the mint in your mouth on this side. And you talk like this. And you use this kind of hand gesture. And you read out of this Bible. And you hold it this way. And you talk it. And I, I, I just, I, all of that. And then I come into John chapter 2. And I see the very first minister evangelist. 
at work. And at the end of the session, 12 guys, all 12 of them, not half of them, all 12 were saved. And I look at his evangelistic strategy, and do you know what I find? There was no sermon. There was no offering. And that's a, I can't believe that one. There's no offering. It didn't take place in a church. In fact, I realized that he didn't even talk to the people that he was presenting this to. The 12 disciples, he doesn't even say one word to them. He never looks over and goes, hey, you guys watching this? I'm trying to show you something. He didn't say anything like that. Nothing at all. What was his evangelistic strategy? His evangelistic strategy was standing in the midst of his world and saying, how can I meet your need? Not according to the way that I want it met, but according to the way he wants it met. And where is that going to take place? In the ordinary, average, everyday circumstances of my life. I'm not sick of programs, but I'm sick of, I'm sick of programs. I'm sick of, we need to grow our church here at uh, Stateline Community Church of the Nazarene. And so we need a good evangelistic program. No, you don't. You need Jesus living and shining in your life so that the people around you can see it. And I would say that if I lived out in the world and they never saw Jesus in me, maybe He's not in me. Because it's not about programs. It's not about saying it just right. I stink as a preacher. I'm just, I'll admit that to you. Do I look like every evangelist you've ever seen? No. I'm younger. Better looking. I dress different. I, I act different. But I learned something very, very true at the beginning of my ministry. That it's not about, it's not about clear-cut presentation. It's not about PowerPoint. He didn't have any of that. You can even be a terrible speaker But if you have good truth, it will carry you every time. And being an evangelist is about standing in the midst of your world and loving Jesus like He's the only thing worth loving. And that, people will see that. They will look at you and say, you are odd. You you aren't into pornography? Why? Because I don't want to use her for myself. I want to pour my life and I want to do what's best for her. People are going to go, what? And you give money away? 10%? What's wrong with you? And you just stand there and point to Jesus. And they begin to see love and compassion. And, and it goes beyond, well, I go to church on Sunday. And I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. And I don't listen to Corn or Marilyn Manson. And I try to listen to the Gaysers as much as I can stomach it. And of course, I do all of... It's, it's bigger than that kind of stuff. It's bigger than that kind of stuff. And Gaythers aren't bad. And, and, and Christian music isn't bad. But see, you can do all of those things and go to church every Sunday and never know Jesus. Because it's about invading it in your life. I hear a young girl talk about wanting to be a youth minister. Don't be polluted. Don't be polluted about dress. Don't be polluted about you got to look a certain way. Don't be polluted, but you got to do it this way. Get into Jesus like He is it and love Him. Drag Him in the midst of your home life, in the midst of your music, in the midst of the TV shows you watch. Hey, get and follow Him like He's the only thing worth following and you won't miss it. This is what Jesus tells His disciples. Are you living that way this morning? I've realized that it's not about personality types. It's not about, well, I'm shy. 
It's not about that. It's not about, well, you know, I just, I, I never have been outgoing. It's not about that. It's not, well, I'm reserved. Well, I don't relate. It's not about that. It's not about not relating. It's not about age. It's not about too old to be a youth minister. Northwest Illinois, is it Northwest, that has the older youth ministers uh, in their 70s? Yeah. One, oh, how old are they? And they're youth ministers. Woo! And they're phenomenal youth ministers. Do they listen to, to, to rap music? No. Who would want to? <laughs> Do they dress like the latest youth teens? No. Do they pretend to be liking the things that they like? No. Well, why are they so successful? Father, we love you this morning.